on? Yep. I'm oh, on. shit. Hello. Welcome, world. It's episode 65 of the Standard Podcast. Now, if this had been recorded several years ago, this would be retirement age, but as we're ruled by a bunch of piss wizards, we need to get the Standard episode 5 billion, probably. How topical. Sorry, a little bit of politics there. Oh. And we sounded like Ben out there. I wasn't like him, because I'm not that big a cunt. Well, it's the end of the beginning to this thrilling pop culture podcast. And goodbye to any of you listeners who have accidentally found us on iTunes. Any of you sympathise Hey, you know what? When I'm talking about iTunes, I feel I should do the obligatory thing that every podcast ever does, which is there's always a bit where someone says, leave us a, leave us a review on iTunes. Leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us out if you leave a review on iTunes. So I'm going to say that. I don't know what difference it makes, but people always say it. It's like it's like obligatory. It's like the way people say, "Oh, I've had a really bad curry and need a crap," or "Oh, um, I watched the bad film, I need some vodka," or um, "Oh, the sun has risen from the sky." All right. If you're feeling generous, you can rate, review, or leave leave a thing on iTunes for us. For well, for Ralph. Uh, however, oh, what you want to do is ignore this fucker and just send me some money. I mean, on, on the subject of money, uh, <laughs> you may recall continuity and the last exciting episode. Andy revealed that for Christmas he was given money. Did he give any to Ralph? Did bollocks. He gave no money to Ralph. He only gave him gifts and books and original artwork instead. I want cold hard what, cash. What an absolute can he have? I want cold hard cash. You know, the, the books won't help me eat. Oh, hang on, hang on. What we got? What we got? Penny. Oh, Chenny Penny. <laughs> Oh, that's a good one as well. It's from 2013. So it's brand new. There we go. Well, I'm going to use this to buy a pizza. Talking of... Anyway, I'm, you, I'm, I'm, who am I? Yes. Let's <laughs> <laughs> get the introduction on the go. Uh, that's Ralph, who can barely remember his own name, or what he was supposed to open the podcast to talk about, and he's forgotten it now three times. Uh, I'll remind him in a moment. I'm Andy. I'm the same one, which isn't really saying a fuck of a lot. So, Ralph... Yes. You were going to talk to us about the smugglers. Oh shit, it's what it was. <laughs> I forgot. I forgot. Right, oh god, this is... this is. Uh, it, yeah, so, Doctor Who. We occasionally talk about Doctor Who. Um, oh, right, well, I might have mentioned that a couple of times in the bathroom. Possibly even in the last podcast, and uh, sorry to Mr Duff, who sometimes says when we talk about anything on the Doctor Who. We will, but we'll get this out of the way... Um, now, after I forgot about it continuously, which is funny because I want to talk about the least remembered Doctor Who story of all, which is the smugglers. What is the smugglers? Is that about people that smuggle things? There is a bit of smuggling at all, that's right. So, um, back in the day, in 1966, uh, when a new series of Doctor Who began, they wouldn't begin with a big, huge, game changing extravaganza. Uh, of, of fireworks and frenzy they would just start with a bog standard story that's what they would do they would just start a bog standard story so this is the fourth year of Doctor Who William Hartnell was still the Doctor but not for much longer and uh, the opening series was called The Smugglers which was set in the 17th century off the Cornish coast I'm trying to remember Evil only listened to it again last week uh, excuse me and follows on from the exciting season 3 finale The War Machines where Wotan, who said... I can't remember now. What did he say? I've only seen it once. What? Oh, the captain. You ain't shit. You've only seen the war machine once. Doctor Who is required. Bring him here. 
Sen fortan. Who invented the internet in 1967. Um, so it's cold. Um, yes. So the Warriors happened, and then season four opened a few months later with the Smugglers. And said, seventeenth century Cornish coastline doctor uh, with his new companions, Ben and Polly. You don't believe that the Tarlers can actually travel in time. You don't believe them at all. Ben doesn't believe anything, though. Ben believes fuck all. Even <laughs> even later on, even later, later on, when then comes Patrick Trout, it's like that's not the doctor. Fucking well it is. Yeah, yeah. That's probably why he just buggers off. Uh, during the faceless ones, he's just like, don't believe any of this at some point. All after once. Someone's just spiked my drink. But again, he wasn't in the Navy, so he's probably drunk the entire time. Yeah. And he's probably drunk the entire time, just going, who is this mad old bastard? Who are these crazy alien things? And this fit of last Polly, who I'm clearly keen to, to do up the poop shoot, just won't let me. No one, poor man. You just know when he, when the character left Doctor Who, he just became a raging alcoholic. All this crap that's in the novels and, and hating Paul. Yeah, it's, it's in the novels and audios about how oh, he had this nice life and how and Polly got together. All oh, he probably just was this homeless, drunken, raving lunatic uh, who just went on about space pirates all the time. So you mentioned you listened to it recently. I did listen to yeah. the Smugglers. Anyway, so the point is the so why why did you have to listen to it? Why did I have to listen to it? Because I bought it. I meant more about being Doctor Who being a TV show for anyone who... Oh yes, so that's the other thing. Well, <laughs> yes, uh, there are currently 800 episodes of Doctor Who in existence. Episode 801 is being filmed and right now, by the way. And there's been various, a few spin-offs, various spin-offs and many episodes, but 800 main episodes up until uh, December of 2013. 97 of those episodes don't exist anymore. Because this was the era where programs were white for reuse. Uh, union deals meant you could only show a program once or twice, otherwise you had to pay people more. There was less uh, available to watch, fewer TV channels. So if you called up with repeats, uh, again, the unions were fighting for the members' rights, saying, well, if you have repeats all the time, there won't be any programs that made, our members will lose work. So, in the context of the time, despite what internet fuckwits might rant about, actually made sense to wipe stuff. In fact, be amazed we have any Doctor Who prior to Tom Baker at all. Here's the thing. It's a disposable program. It's inter- it was meant for entertainment purposes. Yeah, again, it's before Hope McCormick. So 97 episodes don't exist. Of those 97 episodes, uh, which don't exist, some of them have been animated uh, for DVDs. The Invasion episodes 1 and 4, yes. because the Fat Bastard won't take them out of his cupboard. Uh, Reign of Terror, episodes uh, 4 and 5. Four and five. Um, Ted Platt, episode 4. four. Moonbase, episodes 1 and 3. And allegedly, Underwater Menace, mm. 1 and 4, if they ever actually turn up. Yeah. We'll find out. Uh, of the episodes left, uh, a lot of them had telestaps, which was a guy called John Cooner, took photographs of the television screen and sold them to people. So we have visual images that way. Uh, so we have clips for some of them as well. 
we have the scripts, we have very publicity material, and amazingly, we have the audio soundtrack of all of them. Thanks to a lot of people who did off your recordings and the tireless work of people like Mark Ayers and the Restoration Team. They've done amazing jobs to actually make them listenable. The only, I would say, that of the 97 episodes, the only one which you really have to strain to hear, even despite Mark Ayers' efforts, is the fourth part of the massacre, uh, which is very hard to hear at times. But at least with the narration, it helps the job. The Smugglers uh, doesn't ha only has a few clips left, which are Australian censor clips. The Australians, uh, being the fantastic people they are, uh, recorded like Doctor Who and the like, would cut bits out that were too violent, keep those bits and chuck away the rest of the programme. But at least we've got a few stabbings and stuff. Because it's about pirates, you see! Pirates! Who smuggle! Or rather, they're after a treasure called Avery's Gold. Uh, Captain Avery himself would later feature in Doctor Who in 2011. Crush of the Black Spot. Crush of the Black Spot, yes, and uh, Spitnikov and the Good Man Goes to War. Uh, so, at some point, Captain Avery died, left behind a treasure. It's in this town somewhere. Uh, there's uh, some pirates offshore who want it. Uh, there's a whole legend about it. There's uh, other people who want the treasure as well. So, it's a bit of a historical runaround. There's no aliens at all, other than the Doctor. And the only, time, the only science fiction element is uh, Ben and Polly are two people out of time who are on the first adventure. It's quite enjoyable. It rollicks a lot at a good pace. It's actually a better uh, finale for Hartman on the 10th planet is. Because with his health, by the time they got to the 10th planet, a lot of the stuff he was scripted to do uh, was given to Ben and other characters. And even when he's on screen, and the bits that you can see and hear, uh, he's really quite ill. I used to think he was doing an amazing performance of a man at the end of his life until I found out that no, he was just incredibly ill. Yeah. Uh, whereas, from what you can hear in The Smugglers, uh, he sounds on top form, he plays a full part, he's got the humour, he's got the determination. There's also quite a good scene where the new companions say to him, well, why don't we just leave? Why don't we just bug it off and let these people do it? And he goes, no, I have a moral imperative to stay. And if we don't stay, the people in this village will suffer when the pirates ransack the place. So, again, a wee bit unusual for William Hartnell's version of the Doctor, even at the late stage. Um, one of those scenes that I suspect, if it existed on film, would be like, bit about, raved around and so on. In the same way that people suddenly went, oh, that's a good scene in the first episode of The Enemy of the World, where the Doctor says, oh, what kind of Doctor are you? And he goes, well, who's philosophy? And people raved about that as like a defining moment for the character. And you have that here for the first Doctor. And it's also, uh, thinking ahead, it's nice for the character to actually say that out loud at, in retrospect, what you now know is the end of his life. He has become the Doctor that we all know, who stays around to help just because he wants to. Uh, and actually, arguably, uh, you could take the smugglers and you can make it the last Doctor Who story with hardly any changes at all. You could literally take it and just have the last scene of the Tenth Planet where they get him, he's fallen over and he regenerates. It would actually be a bit of finale. It's got a lot of humour to it, it's quite fine. There's a character called Captain Pink, who, at least by his voice, is a very footy villain. Uh, a character called Cherub, war, war. He's an evil pilot. It's fun, it's good. But no one remembered it, including me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, I mean, I, I, mean I, I heard it last week for the second time. And I heard it when it first came out on CD, which was 2004, 2005, off the top of my head. And uh, I remember listening to it, enjoying it, completely forgetting about it all over again. It's strange. Some entertainment's like that, though, and again, it harkens back to Doctor Who was never conceived to be great TV. No. It was to be successful at what it was, which is, it's the show that keeps 
families together around tea time, linking the audience yeah. so ratings will drop. Yeah, it also appears to be one of those episodes, uh, series that just didn't really stick in the mind of people watching. It did have a lower audience figure at the time it went out. Was never repeated, and because of that, monsters and aliens and that time travel, you can see how a lot of the fans who grew up who talk about the missing episodes and remember them. It's maybe not one that we stick in the mind as much. Was that as Brian Hales? It was Brian Hales. Yes, well done. Redeem myself. Yeah, remember something. So yes, I can see why it's not. But you know, it's got all the telly snaps. It's got very high quality soundtrack. It, it really is hard to believe that that's not actually. Uh, a surviving magnetic tape. You do not believe for a minute that it's one of the best conditioned soundtracks of all the missing ones. I'd say the narration does a good job. It's very, it works very well as a radio play. It falls down a little bit in episode four because episode four is when they start doing all the proper swashbuckling. So you do just the first thing. It lost of scenes of people going, "Ah, that's will kill you, Captain Pike." <laughs> well, the narrator goes, and then Captain Pike would fight the revenue men, yeah. and so on. Uh, I, I would say it's, it's. I wouldn't go as far to say it's an overlooked classic because it's not. It's 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 by the numbers, and if you don't like the historical ones, it's not really convincing. But I actually think it's probably one of the most enjoyable. Well, I've, I'm making my way via the Lost TV episode box set just now uh, of of all the serials of Doctor Who that uh, are either entirely missing or partially missing. Uh, so it's definitely kind of marathon, and having just been through all the Hartnell series, it's probably one of the better ones. Uh, it's probably one of the more accessible ones if you're someone who finds it difficult to parse the idea of listening to the soundtrack of a TV show. It's one of the ones that works best as an audio, I feel. It's one of the things that always struck me is how quickly they ditched the historical ones, given that they were the shows that they could do better in terms of production values yeah. because of, oh look, we just need to read the BBC's warehouses. Again, it's something that Cartman talks about in later years, and that when he did the science fiction stuff, because they had no control over who was doing the design work for this yeah. particular episode, the minute you got you said science fiction, they just you got you got nothing. But the minute you went historical and we're going back in time, BBC design departments at the time seemed to love that shit, and you got also the way it's different now, but the way um, television was made at the time, even through its first McCoy's time, uh, was that the BBC, it was all done in-house, so they literally had cupboards and storerooms full of bits of set and costumes that would get used programme to programme, moved around, and so it just built up over the years. So if you had a limited budget, you could maybe stretch to a better looking show uh, with what you had as well. Also, let's be honest, William Harlow tended to be more on form during the historical ones, because I think he understood it more. Yes, you can see that there's less of the... It's quite common for any sort of Doctor Who review website, blog or book, when they're talking about uh, sort of classic era for the Hartnell, it's to draw attention to the floods in various episodes. And the, and it does seem to be the ones where you're struggling with the, the more fantastical element. That, again, how much of that is his comfort zone and how much of it is his illness starting to kick in and get progressively worse, I you can't see. really say but, yeah, the historical ones, because I mean, even going back to the Reign of Terror, yeah. you can tell he's absolutely enjoying that from start to finish. Oh, definitely, definitely. And even some of the missing ones, I mean, what you can hear of him in Marco Polo, he sounds really tuned on, but then not much later in the Keys of Marinus, um, despite the episodes when he goes on holiday, um, when he does the, the trial scene stuff, he doesn't, 
he's, he's okay there because it's more like something he knows, but when he's doing alien stuff and beaches and the like, he's never bad, but he's... There is a difference in the performance that if you're people like us, you can see or hear. General audience, I think, and again, it's not because people are daft or stupid. Like we're just, we're just analysing a bit more. Probably wouldn't notice, but we could. <laughs> Indeed. So, that, so um, I've, I've tried to do my bit for talking about the least remembered Doctor Who. Uh, you can find recons of it online, uh, which are free to view, and should always be free to view because they were made be free to view because people making them never sold them because they were in the circuit bit company. You can find that. Uh, so go and watch it that way. Do not just go and um, get the soundtrack via Yar Methods because it's cheap as chips. Even if you, the box sets with all the episodes in them are now thanks to audio go around there going for stupid money but you can get individual ones like the smugglers which no one cares about on eBay. The original CD will cost you. If you pay four quid you maybe pay too much. And also, with audio promote now looking like being saved, they will get repackaged and re-released. Yeah, this, this, this stuff is out here for you to, to get a hold of. Um, so yeah, by all means, watch a recon if you just want to experience the, the marketers cleaned up audio renovation. Just go buy it. Or, um, if you know someone who's bought it legally, get a copy of them. Uh, because, um, you know, you need to support things like this because it is actually amazing when you think about it that there's actually enough of a market commercially to release audio soundtracks of missing episodes. I can see how there would be a market for bugging out like Dalek ones or Cyberman ones, but the fact that there's enough of an audience to keep these going. And I would like these things to stay in print as well, because there's always new fans coming in, and even old fans. I mean, it took me until about two years ago to finally get through all 26 years of the classic series, because at that point there were 686 episodes. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot to get through, yeah. And particularly with the renewed interest in missing episodes, uh, thanks to uh, the fabulous man of T I E, uh, Phil, not our Phil, other Phil, the other Phil, Phil Morris, who found uh, those nine episodes last year for us. Yeah, well done. And a better copy version of Web of Fear One, which everyone forgets about, but he didn't find a better copy. Um, ignoring some of the conspiracy theories online, there is a wee bit more of an interest in the missing episodes now, so. Um, Go seek them out. And if you want to know more about the fascinating world of missing episodes, thanks to Ralph Shelf uh, in front of me, is there's a book by Richard Moseworth called White. It's not his missing episodes. I imagine he is now feverishly working on a revised edition of the revised edition. Yes, I, I, I have the second edition. Uh, if you want the first edition and you're quick, uh, go to Oxfam Morningside Edinburgh, where I handed it in last week because I didn't need it anymore. So I have the second edition. But talking of editions... What about your edition that you've got there? See that segue? It that was, was. That was smooth. It was beautiful. It's, it's hard to believe the BBC don't hire me. Four knocks. Yeah. This I hold in my hand. It's the fabulous, uh, which none of you could see. So he doesn't actually have this book. He is actually waving it in front of the microphone so you can see. Yeah. And this is the Zenith hardcover from Modern Publishing. Uh, which sent me back 100 notes. What edition number is it? Because uh, it's one edition one of... There was a thousand copies printed. I number 271. Right. Uh, not particularly good issue of the Marvel UK run because it's the latter end of the black and white stuff and it's during the reprint of the G.I. Joe Transformers crossover which I enjoy but we all did a better way of introducing gold bugs. Thank you very much. We enjoy it but not because it's good. It's <laughs> there. Yes. 
Aye. But this is Zenith. Uh, what is Zenith, I hear you ask? I don't know, Andy, what is Zenith? Zenith is a serial from the pages of 2008, The Galaxy's Great Cock, written by Grant Morrison, a.k.a. the god of all comics, or uh, Alan Moore's favourite person, yes. <laughs> illustrated by Steve Earle. Now, this is a bit of an unusual term for 2008 because it's a superhero comic. Superheroes don't figure very, very large in traditional UK comics, nope. uh, and next to not at all in 2008. Uh, basically, the home of Judge Dredd, World Troopers, Rock and Dog, ABC Warriors, Times yep. of the Warlock, etc. Et Generally, the antidote to if you don't want superhero comics. Yes, it does come. A weekly anthology with a lot of heart, science fiction, fantasy, weird stuff. Uh, but this is. This has become very famous for the fact that it's not been collected for quite some time and there are all sorts of legal wrangles about it, which, from the looks of things, appear to have been cleared up. Whether or, people are happy about it or not. Yes. Uh, Zenith was basically Grant Morrison's take on the superhero, but as a media figure, presaging things such as Rob Liefeld's Youngblood, which went on a similar sort of tack several years later, but with more, with more ammo pouches and poor over an if you've never read Youngblood, merely go to any charity shop that stocks comics. There will be a copy of Youngblood if you want there. I guarantee. Yeah, it's true. Uh, it is what it is. I enjoy it. I do like the film. But this was basically a superhero brat. And it's a, this is the complete one that has all of the Zenith stories that have been printed and are ever likely to be printed. Yes. Uh, this was sold as a limited edition hardcover because it was, in effect... There was one of two ways it was going to happen. It's either this is the only Zenith you're ever going to get, or any reprints will not be in this nice format. Indeed. And I've been after this for years. Well, the rebellion were uh, tilting windmills about and seeing if they could get away with it. Yeah. And it turns out they could because there's new editions coming out this year. Which I will probably acquire just for reading copies because yeah. this is not a copy to be funded about. It's a nice. Uh, it's black and white, I should say, with a very nice dust jacket with the traditional yellow livery of Zenith. It's lovely. It's a very lovely just book. It is indeed. Uh, and very nice shiny paper stock as well. Yes. Slightly smaller than the... It's the traditional Rebellion trade size, which is smaller than it was originally put in, but not too far removed from really some of the Marvel premiere and yeah, It doesn't really suffer much. No. Red production's quite good. Red production. Buy on. Uh, so what is Zenith? I don't know, Andy. What is Zenith? Zenith is a pop star superhero, effectively. So in the late 80s, 87's when it debuted, uh, but it turns out that superheroes were created as basically bodies to house alien gods from beyond space by the Nazis. Very much. Gotta love it. Yeah. Almost went Battle of the Planets there. Alien menaces from beyond space. Uh, but the best thing about Zenith is he's a dick. Yeah. Uh, he's a, it's, what would you be if you were 19, year old, 19 years old, you could fly and you could crush ball bearings between your fingers with one of the taglines and some of the early global stuff. And it's like, you probably would be an insufferable tool bag. Mm-hmm. And that's what the character is. Uh, it kind of works in that he's around in all of it, but isn't really central to solving much of the, the ongoing story that come in. where one of my criticisms does come in, which I'll get on to. Yeah, so effectively it kicks off with sort of World War Two either, and we find out that Britain had a superhero. Uh, now, I should point out that most of the characters who aren't the, the principal cast are all thinly veiled analogues of DC Thompson and Fleetway stroke IPC characters. Uh, Who really was? 
But there is characters, uh, Master Man uh, and Maxi Man, like we're all actual proper characters. These are all sort of either public domain or they're won by IP, IPC, so they weren't going to do much about their, their ones. And they were different enough from Fleet, from DC Thompson's ones that falls under the parody thing. Alright. See, whenever I have a, a bit of a dust check, I always take the dust check off. Yeah. I'll just lift it up. Okay. So, it kicks off with basically some sort of World War II era. It turns out that they're testing, the, they're having the two, the Nazi superhero Masterman going up against Maximum William Whitlock, the UK one, mm -hmm. and it's where the Americans drop the bomb. So, close enough to, but it's getting, the bomb is being dropped in Berlin rather than in yeah. Nagasaki, Tokyo. So, it's kind of already right away, slightly different world. But it turns out that they cloned and harvest Maximan because obviously Nazis love twins. They do indeed, and that is actually spelled out as part of the story. Yes, so, uh, and there's a, a seance ritual to, to get this, effectively this is, these are Lovecraft, Lovecraftian gods. And it kind of kicks on with, that's what he's there to basically move towards the ongoing story, which you don't really see much of during the first book of Xenifer, phase as Grant Parson calls it. It's then in the 80s they're talking about the sort of 60s superhero culture, yeah. where you have the sort of, the, at that point, one of the scientists had sort of cloned bits of Maximan and used them to create a serum to create new superheroes in the 60s who all mysteriously lost their powers or died, mm. apart from Zenith who was the kid of one of the couples. Yeah. Yes, they all died and lost their powers in that wonderful conspiracy theory way. Yep. So the, the return of Maximan uh, basically forces the basically superheroes back in the public life, other than Zenith, who is already, I say, trying to be a superhero, trying to be a pop star. Mm -hmm. uh, to be honest, it's a case of well, over actually rough over this. Yes. You get Zenith and Sarah, as Ralph said, not. You didn't like him as a character, he just... No. Um, the, the interesting thing about uh, Zenith is when, when it was published, uh, it was published in four phases, and uh, there was a, a... between 1987 and 1982, and with a sort of follow-up one-off story in Prague uh, 2001, uh, a few years later. And uh, it, it, whenever it was published, it always seemed to coincide with when I was not reading 2018. Um, all they got the occasional issue in the 80s. In fact, most of the issues are right in the 80s where um, a friend of my mother's um, who had Disney D from the start in his loft. So most of my memories of Disney D are from the start through to about 85. And then there's a gap. And then um, sort of 92, 93 is when I started reading it regularly. Um, and also the magazine. So I missed most of Zenith and somehow missed it when it was part of it was reprinted in the best of Disney D. So, I'd come across the odd chapter of it and thought, yeah, it was okay, but it never really stuck in my head. And then as Andy says, over the years, a mystique has grown around it because it just wasn't available to get. And if you wanted to get um, any of the reprints or prior editions of it, you'd be paying through the nose for them. You could get, you could buy the back issue box for not too much, but if you're reading it for one story, it's a cumbersome thing. Yeah, it's and, but the, the Titan editions, which Phase uh, 4 was never actually collected, yeah. but Phases 1, 2, 3, which to be honest, didn't really, it's, the stories of, uh, Phase 4 is, is enjoyable enough, but you can hide that off and you would have Phase 1 and 3 is still a complete story. So you weren't missing anything at that point if you got that. Uh, I would disagree with you there. I'm going to lie, because thematically I think... Yeah, oh, what I'm saying though is... Oh, you you could, could, yeah, yeah. Yes. If, if, if they hadn't made Phase 4, 
and the story is finished. Uh, it's got an endpoint. It has an endpoint. Um, so I kind of missed it. So I was curious to read it. So I was I was loaning this book, and then about three months later, I decided to read it. Uh, this, is not, this is not the longest. <laughs> Come back to start of episode 194 to see if Ralph beats uh, Professor Moriarty, the Hound of the Dugavilles. Yeah, okay. Um, fair enough. Um, yes. So, <coughs> I finally got around to reading it recently, and the interesting thing about Zenith, it's a bit like I imagine, uh, or, or kind of reaction to things like um, The Exorcist. If you think of The Exorcist, you couldn't get that for years, but you could, but not really. Yeah. And it comes out, and then you sit and you watch it, and you go, well, what's the fuss about? Or it's just a good film, not the, not the best thing ever. There's a lot of people's reaction. I read Zenith, I thought Zenith was good. I enjoyed it, I thought it was a good read. I think it works particularly well as a full book where you can read the whole thing in one go. Um, it holds together quite well. Phase 4, for my mind, uh, Phase 4 has a, has a conceit which I'll not give away because it has a twist. And if you get it early on, you either get it early on or you'll be really surprised. I got it early on, but I think more because I was reading the whole thing in one sitting. It's a lot more obvious that way. Well, I think also, you, because there's a, in Phase 1, the evil Nazi, who is Ayak one of he confronts arguably the most interesting character in the Zenith books, mm-hmm. Peter St. John, yeah. who is one of the 60 superheroes who's, who was a, a telepath who lost his powers, yeah. obviously never did. It's part one and part two. He's now a Tory minister. Uh, he confronts him in his office, and there's just a li- nice panel where Peter St. John's screwing his face up, and Eric Sothoff's got a finger to his temple, as if he's got just... It's done in such a way to convey just subtle annoyance having to deal with this little player. But it turns out this is the point where it's a, a story for a detail in the story but not too big a deal because I actually hope continues like this. He basically collapses the guy's brains and planted a post-hypnotic suggestion that he activates when they're in a bit of danger. And it's just nice that Morrison yeah. always does that. Chekhov's when he's old, he always makes sure whatever he, yeah. he, he pl- there's no real sort of Days X Mac in the moments in Grant Morrison's work, it is layered in if you want to see it. But yeah, but but yes, phase four, I felt, you know, it comes to a nice conclusion, I felt, story's done, don't need to read anymore. There is the problem, there is the one study which is garbage, uh, absolute garbage that comes after, and to be honest, I would just hack those pages out because it's crap. Um, and, and, and also because, oh, partly because it's an awful story, and secondly, um, phase four ends just just the right bit for me, just bang on. Uh, so, is it worth reading? Yes. Is it the best thing ever? No. Because like I was saying, talking about extras and things like that, when you finally get a chance to be exposed to something that's built up this mystique, there's always going to be an inevitable amount of, well, what's the fuss all about? And when I read it, I thought it's a very good 30 day serial, very well drawn, in fact, the, the artwork is fantastic. There's not a panel wrong all the way through. Absolutely wonderful. The black and white stuff, I prefer to the colour, but the colour stuff's fine as well. It, it looks brilliant, it's great. It's just a very good 2008 serial, but I don't think it's a classic because, for a couple of reasons. Partly it's due to personal taste, which is uh, Lovecraftian gods from beyond time and space with silly names who want to call who are everywhere and can do everything and want to take over everything are one known body. They are one known body. They only want to do one thing, it's not an interesting thing, and it, so the third phase, which is the most ah, thing from beyond space, what we've got as well, is 
but to be honest, the phase which I thought was a bit um, dull. It's still, it's quite, it's a, it's a good read, but it's a bit, it's by far the least interesting, but that's part of its personal taste. But the, my main criticism of it, um, and the thing I think which stops it from going from a very good serial to a classic serial, is the lead character of Zenith. Now, the lead character, as Annie said, he's, he's shallow, he's, he's young, he just wants to be a pop star, wants to do good things. Um, is a bad is a bad main character for two reasons. A, he's a prick. I don't care about him. He's not interesting. He's not developed in any way at all. He doesn't change. He doesn't grow. And with a lot of the story, with not a lot of effort, you could take the character and you could take him out the story and rewrite it, and you really wouldn't notice. Every other character in the book is more interesting. Every other character in the book I cared about. Zenith, I didn't care about at all. Now, I will concede that I think that's part of the point. I think what part of the way the story's told what it's going for is to have a character like that. There is also something interesting to be said about uh, subverting the superhero genre a little bit by having the main character be a cipher who's not interesting. But at the end of the day, for me personally, you still have to have some hook, you still have to have something interesting to the character. You still have to see him develop in some way, and it doesn't work. And also, while there is also a storytelling um, thing there about how sometimes you can have a character who's the lead character who doesn't really influence things, but does a little, yeah, but it doesn't really work for me. It doesn't work at all. I also don't like the character design, which I get, which is more of a personal thing rather than criticism of the text. I don't like the costume, I don't like the hair, and it just annoys me. Um, so, but that sounds like, oh, I didn't enjoy it, I did. And if it hadn't been something out of print and built up on the internet and so on for years, probably wouldn't be as harsh as those aspects. But all I would say to you is, if you come to it, it is being reprinted in uh, four, I guess four hardcovers, uh, late in 2014. I would say it's worth your while. I would say it's still worth your while to go and read it. But I would say go into it with less of the, this is, this is the best thing ever, this is... That's why I'm, I've, yeah. I never so I read it back in the day and loved it because yeah. again Ralph's scriptures were perfectly valid I think also that what you have is that Grant Morrison is now arguably a much better writer than he was then mm-hmm. uh, what I will say though is for Phase 3 while the, the Lovecraftian stuff might not be your taste it's still possibly the best way to deal with random superheroes and alternate worlds that you'll get in any kind of comic because I think, well, I, the reason why I struggle about Phase 3 is two things. Half my brain was going, I suspect a lot of these characters are copyright people, out of copyright and analogues, and it was starting to annoy me. Because I thought, this is just, there's also references no. here. Some of them are, uh, some yeah, of them are characters. And also, also, there were too many, there were too many characters, and um, it was just too many for the story. I couldn't really care about a lot of them. And there was the robot, the ass, the ass eat robot. Robot oh, okay. Yeah, he's. The, if you read a lot of Grant Morrison stuff, which I have, and I do think when he's on form, he's a good writer. I think he has a certain. Every author has their ticks, their authorial ticks. And one of the authorial ticks that Grant Morrison has is you will have a character and/or phrase of the time that he's writing it. That's just a Grant Morrison thing. It's hard to explain. It's like it's just a thing that just jumps out as here's a Grant Morrison tick. And it just annoys me. And the acid robot, I'm just going, no, you're, you're pulling me out of the story. You're just an authorial tech. You are annoying me. Um, the rest of the one, the one of the, the um, superheroes that I did like uh, was there was the guy who was going to, I'm not a failure. Big Ben. Big Ben. 
and he has a little story arc, and, and I actually cared about him. He was the one that I was um, into, um, and I uh, also liked in this first trade, like the Welsh drunk man. Oh, uh, Shatner. Yeah, so he was a dragon. Yeah, so those two of all the other superheroes um, made an impact on me. The rest of them, I, I didn't really care uh, about. I liked Peter St. John, but you don't care. Oh, I don't really care. I don't really care about him as one of the, the ten people. Yeah. Peter St. John, along with Payne, the scientist yeah. who creates all, are the two best characters. And it's why at times I was getting so annoyed with the main character being in the book, because I'm like, no, I don't care about you, you don't contribute anything, can I have more about it? Which I think is why the fourth book is actually my favourite of the, the four Tenet books, because I think it's the one that, as the colourless conceit to it, works the best of the full package, works best of the rest of the material, and also has Peter St. John and Payne as the main characters, and cuts a lot of the... Crap it. And also, I think by that point, Morrison is a better writer. Again, there's the. And probably, I think the reason why I work the best for me as well is in context, you've had three phases of black and white. There's a couple of colours for last pages. Um, and it, but it's mostly almost all black and white, and then you suddenly cut the colour. And in the context of a collected volume, it suddenly gives phase four more of an impact than I think it would have if you read it otherwise. So, yeah. Um, I said, I mean, you know, it sounds like I'm, I'm leaning into it. I did enjoy it. It's just, it's just not the greatest thing ever. Grant Morrison has done better, but I think Steve Yole um, uh, actually deserves to have the book back in print because he deserves to have royalties coming in off the back of this. Yes, because it's absolutely stunning. Yeah. Uh, as Brad said, the black and white art again for me. The top, I think it's Jim Hart. Hart. Uh, of course, yes, yeah. uh, is fantastic. Her color, color work is fantastic. I've always loved it. But the black and white stuff is fantastic. Just also, there's an evil Richard Branson in it. Well, not evil, but just a douchebag Richard yeah, Branson. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a twat Richard Branson. And, and he's in the second one, isn't he? Yes, yeah. he's. Uh, and he gets the ending you really hope does actually happen to Richard Branson one day. Uh, there's some rather eerie sort of because uh, I remember when it came out with one of the conceits is that St John sort of moving through his political career, and miraculously you have the the heart attack of the Labour leader yeah. John Smith mm-hmm. and I think about a year later yeah, probably so wasn't, the heart attack, uh, yeah. it's just one of those eerie little moments that I remember when it happens like eh. yes. it's let's see it's, I like alternate and grown up takes on superheroes are ten a, plank, ten a penny and not many of them are good no. this one is this is good it yeah. actually does have something to say about you know what superheroes what what would they be like? And again, it keeps the powers to a, a good set. Yeah. It's all kind of based along. There, there are not too many daft ones. Even it's like okay, so they can fly. They're usually super strong, telepathic, and either heat addition or subtraction abilities. That's pretty much yeah. it. One of the things I like about it is, is actually that it moves along in real time. Yes. It is between eighty-seven and ninety-two, and does reflect um, a lot of the culture of the time. Yeah. It's, um, so, and, and so you get a sense of, um, you know, the, the, the Lovecraftian bollocks, gods thing and so on. That it, it takes them a few years to get their shit together. This whole thing takes place over a period of time. And um, that's interesting and refreshing. Not so unusual for British comics. I'd say it's more unusual for American, American superhero comics, which always have this conceit of... Ten years, ten years sort of period. Yeah, but, but you won't pick up an issue of Fantastic Four in 2013, but they'll say it's the year 2013. 
and then 12 issues later they say it's the year 2014 and so on but like, no why it's just a, it, yeah. it's a different type of story it's not a criticism it's just yeah. a different thing so there we go so that's uh, that's that so from from something which is flawed but good to something else actually. Yes, so uh, we mentioned in the last podcast that uh, due to real life issues, the good doctor did not join us for New Year. Now, traditionally, we gather at uh, Stunt Ralph Carl's house and enjoy alcohol and some bad DVDs. And some good DVDs, but always some bad. Now, prior to uh, going out uh, for the New Year, we, the good doctor and myself, were on the DVD hunt. Sure. And so we picked up two uh, gems. What, what, yes, we did. Both of which Ralph said we have to get there. Yes, uh, so we got the Wicker Tree, the sequel to which, the Wicker Man. Which we're not going to watch this now, so maybe you can no. tell us about it. Uh, honestly, there's a bit with Christopher, Christopher Lee in it that's really, really, really good. And there's a film around it. Excellent. And there was the car. The car. No, I am about to watch the car. I haven't seen the car. Now, I have wanted to see the car for quite a while because I came across the trailer one day on YouTube. Randomly, good YouTube will let familiar to you from previous episodes. What was the trailer? I thought it was hilarious. It's a seventies horror film about a demonic car which kills people, um, and it, it's, it's a scream. And I've seen a few clips. I thought, but it, it, it never popped up. I couldn't find it online. You see, so I was very excited to see. It. Actually, had a, I didn't think it had a DVD release. I never thought to search. I generally never thought to search for the DVD of it because I just assumed it's one of those old, yeah. shitty, crappy films that you know does not really get on a DVD. Sadly, we weren't that lucky. Now, I've seen this film, so this is going to be the second time I've watched this film. Now, to, for context, as I said, I still don't, I, at this point in time, don't understand I'm not going to say anything. I have, I have been quite... Now, just to explain, I'm not going to talk about why I hate it, or what caused me to do it, but what I will say is when Ralph was away during New Year... I got a string of abusive messages. From Stunt, from Stunt Ralph Carl, from Stunt Ralph Nick, and from myself. Now, Nick, I felt the sorriest for it, because uh, young Nick, he of uh, Toy Freeving, doesn't actually drink. He does not. Uh, quite frankly, heavy Scottish is beyond me. But anyway, Carl and I were enjoying vodka, and then seeking solace in vodka, and then praying to the vodka that the pain would end, or vodka would take our pain away, and it didn't. In fact, I believe that such was your age at this particular motion person experience, you missed the bells. Yes. You missed the change over the years. We did, because we were bitching about how shit that would be. So let's, let's watch it. So we're going to take a little break, and might fortify myself, I don't know, and we'll be back with uh, our thoughts on the car. Evil has visited the earth in many forms. Now it returns as the car. There's no driver in the car. A car possessed. I know why he didn't go into the cemetery. The ground was hallowed. Stop the car. 
nowhere to turn. The car, he's in here. Nowhere to hide, no way to stop the car. I, th I think I hear the engine of that car. It's around here somewhere. I... Wait, I'm scared. No, I promise you I won't go out. Tell me what to do, baby. I... I... What evil force drives the car? And we're back. We're back. So, 1977. What a year. The year of Star Wars. The year of Tumble. The year of Tumble. The year before Burns. <laughs> so, yeah, so 1977 also gave us the car. I think 1977's not even myself and Star Wars can can try off the Well, let, let's, let's find that, shall we? Because oh. the, the front of the DVD says, What evil drives the car? With an exclamation mark. Now, before we begin, I'd like to point out, you may recall from our last exciting episode uh, that we lamented that the Batman 1960s TV show is not available to legally purchase. On DVD, or on iTunes. You, you, you can't legally get you it. You have to go to a comic convention and get... <laughs> And get bootlegs from shady fuckers with discs. Oh, it's the year 2014. We don't have to do that anymore. I'll you want it now. Ah, yes. Solid. Solid, solid. Yes. Especially after the Yeah, but, but, that's not available. But this is available legally to purchase on Region 2 and all this. Yes. It's a 12 certificate. It contains moderate threat and sex references. Makes it sound exciting. The description is as such. <coughs> James Brolin stars as Sheriff Wade Parent, a man who must stop a large, black, two-door sedan from terrorising a small New Mexican town. No one knows the car's origin, who is driving it, or how to stop it. After it kills the three people, the Sheriff must find a way to stop this seemingly indestructible machine on that car. It's an oddly gripping and altogether unconventional horror film. Uh, we can watch the car in English, Italian, Spanish, or Russian, which uh, incidentally is in mono as a voiceover, whereas the other tracks aren't surround. Our subtitle options are English, Italian, Spanish, Danish, Finnish, Norwegian, or Swedish. Thus, my other half, who's Polish, is spared from this pile of shit. No, she I know, but she can't experience it in her native yeah. language. Now, this is the second time I've watched the film. Okay, yeah, so it is the second time, as, as we Now, let's talk about the, uh, the storyline of the car, shall we? So, it begins with a great deal of promise, I feel. Uh, we have a kind of ominous theme tune by Leonard Rosenen, who was a real composer who did the Planet of the Apes films that Jerry Goldsmith did, and also ten years later would do Star Trek for The Voyage Home. Celebrated composer, good stuff, such da, 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 ominous, ominous shots of a highway and uh, two people on bikes going along this highway out in the sticks somewhere near this New Mexican town and uh, we see a point of view from inside this sinister car, it's all red, like evil, you know, and, and it's going on and then it, it runs the, the two people off the road and I thought, I, I, I said, this isn't so bad. See now at this point when I watched it the first time, 
my worries were, were were quite early on when the car they're using speeded up footage to make the car look like it's going faster but still traveling glacially slow and at one shot you see in the red filter of the car it can see the cyclists then the next shot cuts to just in just as you're in front of the cyclist yet there's no the car is not inside okay and it take it basically nudges the two cyclists off a bridge doesn't plow through them which it, I, you have to vary the deaths I horrors that but for your opening statement of intent needed to be one of those assholes bounces off the car over the bridge and it bangs I, I, I still enjoy that because within the realms of tosh obscure 70s horror films not being as into the genre as yourself not being as much of a connoisseur I was perfectly happy but here we go then we cut them instantly to shit don't we don't we sort of um, uh, analogue you can find in modern terms is Transformer Dark of the Moon which has a very opening very uh, promising 10 minute opening the title comes up and then it just turns to shit instantly so we, we find uh, 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 a chap with a horn shit no but first we cut to Sheriff Wade then. we cut to Sheriff Wade I, I blocked that from my mind uh, yeah that's so he's a single dad the bro one yeah the bro one yes uh, looking for all the world like uh, the, yeah, the Aldi Burt Reynolds. Uh, yeah, so he's a single dad who apparently has a girlfriend and he's got his two kids he's looking after and he's called Parent. I mean, come on, for <laughs> fuck's sake, writer, what the fuck are you on? So anyway, so um, uh, Poundland uh, Burt Reynolds. Fucking Dennis Shirak, Michael Butler and Elaine Slate. Indeed, who are they? They've been screenplay writers. They've been screenplay writers, right. Um, so, anyway, so Cup Race, um, uh, Burt Reynolds fills around with his lass uh, to establish a character about who they are. She teaches kids at a local school, uh, which has an astonishing scene uh, not long after where she's trying to teach the kids um, a kind of song for like, a wee parade thing that's going to happen. And so the, the sniffing teacher comes up and says, can, can I speak to you in private? Like, of course you can, of course. She's all like chirping cheerful, of course you can. And uh, she, the, the head teacher uh, pulls out a a line drawing of a naked lady and the naked lady is in fact the teacher and she says uh, do, you, do you know who drew this and she's just like yes of course I know it's, it's little Tommy so and so all chirpy and cheerful and uh, the teacher says do you think this is appropriate for a 13 year old child to, to draw this naked picture of the teacher and she goes yeah the teacher just fucks it off and you're just like no 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 that's not appropriate anyway at all you should have a word with that child do something so instantly you think, I, I don't like you, I want you to die. Which is a bad thing in a horror film. No, 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 in all fairness, you hate her before that. You do hate her when she's fooling about with uh, Sheriff <laughs> Aldi Mark Reynolds yes. and she starts putting on comedy accents. Oh, that's right, she starts. Because you know how much you hate comedy accents. I accent. fucking hate a comedy accent. Everyone who does a comedy accent needs to go and die. Just that, anyway you like. I don't care how you do it. Just go and die. Don't pester me. Don't suck up my oxygen. Don't take away the sausage rolls in the supermarket that could be mine. Uh, so, so anyway, what so you like a What about I thought? Jesus Christ! I go to the dance constantly there, Andy. Fuck where you're going. Oh, by the goodness, so you will. Anyway, there's no way these people are. Why should you say more Scottish than you don't do? Oh shush. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I'll put the gypsy cuff upon you. 
Edward. You actually sound Scottish. <laughs> you sound crazy chipped up. No, no, no. I didn't, I didn't. Anyway, anyway, back to the plot. So, we cut to this um, hitchhiker musician chap who's outside the house and he sees a chap beat up his wife and does the right thing and says, Hey, hang on a minute. What are you doing? Can't go knock about the bud. Yeah, that's unacceptable. But then White Peter confronts him and his spine disappears. At which point you just don't care about him. And then he starts doing this comedy routine because he sees a car coming up. He starts doing this comedy routine about, yeah, yeah, it's going to be the 34 year old Brett. Yeah, she's going to be nymphomaniac. Nymphomaniac, Brett, yeah, and I'm going to totally pump her and all this kind of business. And you're like, mate, you've never seen the touch of a woman in your life. It's not going to happen. And then there's a moment of joy where the car. Knocks him over and you punch the air and you think, okay, maybe the film started to go back a bit. No. No. That, that, that is pretty much it. Um, so then the film, the film continues. The, the car, the mysterious car, terrorises the town by killing folk. There's a fabulous um, officer in the police department. It's the head sheriff. Yes. I don't know why he's in the film because I don't think he knows what acting is. No. I mean, he's, he's glorious, isn't it? He is gloriously bad. Because he, he's so he awful. has a little subtext where you can tell that uh, he actually, back in the day at high school, took a shine, or had a shine, uh, to the wife uh, that, that was uh, getting beaten up. up by Arthur at the start and uh, gets her into the, uh, the office and basically says, Look, tell me what he's been doing and I'll get the bastards and stuff. So she goes out and she goes, No, where are you going? You're, you're not hoping you to go back to it. I'll put you up in a hotel. Everything will be fine. And then all of a sudden he turns out to Mark Reynolds and he goes, Let's all get pissed! We're glossing over the most important bit of the film. Is you, you've forgotten to mention that there is also another actor in this who should know better and should be deeply, deeply ashamed of himself. That, well, I, I was holding off and getting to oh, that. Was, for oh, the timeline of the plot, you must like, I know, but we need to just finish the story of, of uh, Sheriff here. So he decides, let, let's all go and get pissed. Then he goes outside and the car kills him. So he's gone and there we go. But the sensational star of the film is... Ronnie Cox. Ronnie Cox. Because he's shitting it and he's depressed, but he basically is a barometer for the mood of the audience. He is the avatar for the film. His, his storyline is that he's been sober for two years. It's one that's just about the anniversary. You say it's happy anniversary during the film. For his yeah, two year two years. anniversary. He's been off the booze for two years. During which he cracks. But what's brilliant is that he is... is, is morose and depressed all the time and the directors obviously realised that Ronnie Cox is the star of this film because there's lots of scenes where the camera is on him for a very very long time and while he breaks down mentally as an avatar for the audience who are breaking down mentally I'd like to point out as well but this point is like I want everyone in this film to die but this is rubbish this is terrible almost everyone to die almost everyone we'll get to that we'll get to that almost everyone to die at which point I said go, let's go and get some Coca-Cola so we can make well, cracking rum and cola drinks. Yes. Not too bad. It's a school night. But generally, I have a rule. I don't even usually have one at all on a school night. But it's like, no, no, I, I need something to get me through this. This is dreadful. This is this is dreadful. There is, however, a sequence of utter joy, which I genuinely did enjoy, where the police department, uh, who are increasingly being killed, electorate, etc., uh, decide to go out and pursue the car. Um, which in the true Benny Hill fashion is done via the magical speed of the footage. But without doubling up the frame rate. Without doubling up the frame rate. So you've got the car. Now, some people might not notice this. We kind of notice this kind of thing. That amuses us. I, I think, to be honest, everybody notices yeah. it. Especially as in one of the scenes where they unfortunately show you one of the cars turning a collar. Always a dead giveaway. Yes. Uh, now, the police are, well, how can we put it? 
shit. There was, however, a subplot for those who are keen enough to notice, which is that in the police force there's an Indian chap. A local oh, American, shall we say. Native American. Native American. Local. 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 We no. here at the start of the podcast don't condone racism, but it would appear that Ralph just can't help himself. The local American child. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it's played by an actor who, like the, the deceased sheriff, clearly is a, is a stranger to acting. Uh, but because he's a stranger to acting, and he plays it so badly, the way that he reacts, completely without emotion, to all the police officers that are killed for the film, and the way that he's playing, seems to imply he's allowing them all to be knocked off so that he can take over as the sheriff. A subplot which comes almost to its fruition when, when Sheriff Wade, as a girlfriend, uh, and perhaps the best sequence in the film, goes back to her house and she's on the phone going, I've, I've, I've felt the mystical wind that comes when the car comes here. I can hear it's falling, what we're going to do? And the car fires through the building and kills her. Now, just before this, a local American chap is in the car with her. Yeah. He's been told to take her home and look after her. And she's like, oh, do, would you like to come in? And he goes, no. <laughs> just like that's the way he talks you know. in fact sometimes he talks without moving his mouth it's, it's, it's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> so so he goes on and she goes ah that's okay you, you must be um, worried about your family then doesn't say a word she says I'll come back in half an hour again so then he goes and leaves her to die thus, thus positioning himself one step closer to being the sheriff because he knows she's about to die then her boyfriend who's currently the acting head of the department He'll go off out of his mind and die. Top job is mine, as is the rights of my people. You white swines, die all of you. That's what he's thinking in his head the whole time. Yeah, so uh, we've established at this point that the, the car the car itself confronts during the parade. There's a parade rehearsal with uh, Wade Pennant's bird, uh, her best mate, who happens to be Rory Cox's bird, uh, and a whole host of vaguely tabletless children and horses. Uh, they flee into the, the yeah. cemetery and the car can't come in at that point. And this is where the annoying girlfriend of Wade Parent becomes it's even more annoying. Point. This is before she did. Uh, gets even more annoying. But during this point, Luke's girlfriend uh, demonstrates some sensibility, sense by basically running away from the cemetery and getting in a police car to radio them to get them to come here. Is she regret that they want to live? Yes. Splendid. For a couple of reasons. <laughs> okay. Hey, I'm, I may be being sure for this, but you've just been deeply, deeply offensive for reasons. Yeah, Quite frankly, I think I, I'm covered in glory here right now. Well. But anyway, basically, it ends up with a, a titanic <laughs> confrontation where Wade gets near the car. And he demonstrates a little bit of sense when he actually takes a, a revolver out, shoots out the tyres, and shoots at the windscreen of the car, not leaving a mark. Now at this point, like yeah, presidential windows have been around for a fucking while, this kind of shabs. He so he goes up to, to the car to find out who's driving it because no one's ever seen it. And just as he gets to open the door of the car, it swings its door open and knocks him to the ground, which at this point is enough to knock him out and concuss him because he is shit. Yes, and the car at this point doesn't just decide to run him over. 
It just buggers off. Yeah. Uh, setting up the final commission again, where the uh, local American chap just goes, when he goes, I shot out the, the tires and the windscreen, and he just goes, Hold of glass. Same egg with the audience is like, Yeah, you fucking dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> Top job's gonna be mine. Yeah. <laughs> it's all gravy. So, uh, climaxes are a fantastic plan to, to uh, basically, they, the they, fuck they, out. Get, they get the wife beater who's been in jail and go, we need you, and he just has this enormous grin on his face. At this point you're still going, that's okay, by the rules of the movie, the car's going to kill you, the car will kill you, you will get your comeuppance. No, he never does get his comeuppance, because he gets them some explosives and helps them in their plan and survives. An exciting plan which involves an, an amazing sequence where uh, all day Burt Reynolds is in his garage with the car which appears from nowhere and then uh, there's a chase sequence as he escapes from his garage and he's on his bike and the car half and goes rawr, 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 chases him out in the desert and then there's an exciting sequence. I'll tell you, I would say exciting but it's so but it's set during dusk, authentically. So you can't really see what's going on. But generally they're trying to blow it up. They succeed in blowing it up. And a spectral thing emerges. It's in the flames, you can see like leathery wings and shit, yeah. as might suggest. And look, who's so the boy goes, Didn't you see? Didn't you see the, the flames? Goes, and Sheriff Aldi goes, It's over, look, it's over. And at this point, you just want to say, It really is over, because I'm about to go home and bark your bird. Pretty much, pretty much, because this is gone. And then it ends with basically footage of the the car in a city implying it's alive again yeah. and then uh, the screen goes black after the credits and you hear the sound of the horn <laughs> so that was that was awful yes that was awful um, don't seek out the car <laughs> no what evil drives the car the evil of mediocre Hollywood films that evil, that pernicious, never-ending evil that will never go away. Should you be curious, and one of the few HMVs left, three or four quid will uh, get you this exciting DVD. But no, I mean, because it's not, it's not on YouTube or Daily Motion. I've checked. I'm sure you can. And there probably aren't even any torrents of it. It's probably not even enough people who care. But yeah, just got a DVD release which is still on sale. Where are my Batman, Adam West DVDs? Hmm. Where the fuck's my X-Men Evolution? Season 3. Or 60 Spider... 60 uh, Fantastic Four. Yeah, where are these things? Where are they? So we get the fucking car. So I think we yeah. should I think we should conclude with a little bit of joy. Because I, I see that you have brought a, um, a, a novel. Oh, indeed. While you fetch a novel, I'll tell people what it is. On a previous podcast, uh, we received a gift from a listener. Uh, it was the novelisation of Zardos, the crazy John Berman film. Uh, if you remember the plot, this is about the uh, the giant stone head which comes down in some mysterious land where a chap called Zed, um, who is played by Sean Connery in the film, confronts it and the giant stone head spews out guns uh, to uh, Sean Connery and his mates and says that the gun is good and the penis is evil. That's right, if you don't believe me, go look up some clips on YouTube, or better yet, watch the trailer uh, for Zardoz. So, um, last time we, we read to you the opening of Zardos, so as I, uh, we had uh, chapter one up until uh, sort of the gun thing appearing and stuff like that. So uh, what we're going to do now is Andy has a novel, as I speak, 
that he is flicking through it for an exciting sequence to read to you all. I'm sure he'll find it any second now. Literature is a good thing. Um, words are good. Books are good. This is a good book as well. How are you getting on there, Andy? I'm just trying to... I tell you, unfortunately, if it's, the, if it's the film, you can just go on the right bit and do it. Kind of Tell you what, just pick a number. Um, 102. Okay. What have we got? Okay. Alright, so. I'm going to start at page 101 just because there's a line at the end of the Fred spoke. We had come so close to penetrating the mysteries, only to find our minds were wanting. We wanted to solve all the problems that betrayed man, but we just went up to it. Zed nodded. Our she one creature. Blood monster condemned to eternal life, rebuilding itself from its fading plans. Just as human body cells grew old and as they died were copied, letting flaws and smudge, smudges be reproduced, these in turn would turn out grainier and more defective pictures of the last. So here, the Eternals, when rebuilt, had become paler shadows of their former selves, until the paler shadows began paler copies yet, and the shadows melted back into sunlight and oblivion. But how were they linked to each other and to the tabernacle? Friend took him back again to the beginning and down they sank. A stately scientist in real time, a babbling renegade, the one who had pointed at him that first time, was standing at a slab on which was May. Her forehead opened from a deep incision. In his fingers was a clamp, and at the end of this a tiny crystal which he set into the wound, saying, This crystal shall join us, each to each and all to the tabernacle, and each was loaded ceremoniously with his third eye of light. So all the Eternals carried this tiny transmitter which beamed out their every experience to be recorded in the tabernacle. When they died, they were rebuilt from the plans, starting from a tissue record. The accelerated fetus was programmed with all the life and experience of the dead person up to the moment of death, so that he or she would step alive and as before into the place in the vortex. The old scientists had started it. They had done it, Fred explained. They were the scientists, the best in the world. But they were middle-aged, too conditioned to mortality. They went renegade. We were born into the vortex life. We are their offspring. We were better able to deal with eternal life. Astonishing. Astonishing, and uh, that doesn't make any sense to you. Doesn't make any sense to us either. And we've watched the film. Indeed. <coughs> um, so join us another time for another exciting um, random, random reading, random reading from Zardos in this thrilling occasional feature. Yes. Who knows when it will appear or when you'll remember? Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, 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 hang on. I, I saw you flicking through. Was that an advert for the Kit Pedler and Jerry Davis book? Uh, yeah, Mutant Fifty Nine, the Plastic Eater. A new nightmare from the creators of Doomwatch. A chilling and topical story of what can happen when scientific research done in the name of progress backfires to spread terror throughout the crippled health that is London. Could just quite lots of things, yeah. couldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, the reason this came about was we remember this, other than it's our it's just inside my shelf, is that we're talking about one of the New members of the TMEK forum was talking about building a, a Mayhem Attack Squad to go with a records team he's assembled. Who are the Mayhem Attack Squad? The Mayhem Attack Squad were in the Marvel uh, UK colony with the records. Transformers? Is the opposite number to the records. So they were the Decepticon sort of elite commando unit. And they've appeared in a form of sort of task force X effectively yeah. in Last Stand of the Records by friend of the podcast, Nick Rochard, other friend of the podcast, Mr. Dave Roberts. Hello. Hello, you both. Uh, so. He was looking for modes, and the, the, there was talk about a basis for strang, uh, Stranglehold. Yeah. Uh, one well, of the three contenders, along with Bludgeon and Octopunch, who debuted. 
There were many years we've, uh, we've, we've looked at Stranglehold out of shell. Uh, just Google Transformers Pretender Stranglehold. Yep. Or TFYT. or maybe Andy will put a picture on the website to go with this so you'll know what he looks like. He's the one that we all laughed at and thought, oh, he looks like a He-Man knockoff. He's got the moustache, he's, he's got sort of... A big sash across his yeah. chest. And it didn't twig until someone mentions that he looks like Sean Connery from Zardos minus the ponytail. For the member Blue, <laughs> Blue Chef said, nonsense, he's, he's Zed, the enforcer played by Sean Connery and Zardos, and posted a picture of Stranglehold Potential Shell and Sean Connery and Zardos. Go look it up. This doesn't make good audio, so this means you have to do this job yourself. But it's worth it. But I just about spat out my coke. Because we all know that Pretender Grimlock's human shell looks like Richard Nixon. This has been well documented. By us. But indeed. Indeed. But it's always nice to know that even after 20, coming up for 30 years, uh, there's always something new to find in Transformers. And yes, dear listener, perhaps there's something new to find out about you yourselves. Reach deep inside yourself. Pull forth the truth of elimination and the secrets of destiny hitherto unknown to you could be yours perhaps it's just another trip to Asta perhaps it's a trip for destiny in the Salty Dial who can say and with such sage wisdom we now say goodbye to you you can find me on twitter at star underscore dub well, the indeed you can find that at us on twitter star underscore dub Protected account, so you will have to ask to follow me because I am a superstar. Uh, and Andrew can be found. Uh, Andrew D. Turnbull. And the exciting website is. is uh, HTTP colon backslash backslash www.star dub.com. Go on, leave us a review on iTunes. Or send us some money. Money Buy is better. Uh, I quite enjoy uh, potato juice notes for us, particularly Finlandia is quite a nice yeah. one. Uh, some Polish vodka is quite good. There's the Zabruska, the Zabrowski, I don't know. The Bison Grass one. The Bison Grass, that's quite uh, nice. Can we get a wee bit of Grey Goose either, or Cheeky Russian Standard? Uh, the Regeneration Vodka, or oh, a Special Edition Spurner for Sparkly Bits. So that's quite nice, that's quite good. What we have here is um, we have uh, Kraken, uh, Black Spaced Rum, uh, which is bizarre, fear, sea creatures, and seen through the eyes of imagination. Um, uh, which has got a picture of a Kraken on it, and a rather splendid bottle. Um, which I always feel like I can use for something. The Kraken is imported wrong from blah 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 and it's evil. I want, I want a limited edition one that's, that, that's got Carlos Esquire drawn of the, the knockoff dread from Necropolis. Or indeed, indeed even better than that, uh, there was the Action Force Kraken. Yeah. Yeah. Which is indeed Kraken. Bye everyone! <laughs> Never been more disgusted with you than right now.